You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the show. My name's Stuart Goldsmith. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast. And today I'm talking to Adam Bloom, who is returning to the show after an eye-watering 12 years. Uh, He was episode six, I believe. Um, Adam is back on the show, an incredibly funny man. And importantly, he is here to talk to us about his new book, Finding Your Comic Genius. Now, I've read some of it. I haven't read all of it. Uh, I, I cannot wait to read the rest of it. It is... It's it's a it is I'm gonna I'm gonna gush at him. I think I make him cry in this episode. Um, I can't tell you how much you read this book. This is not SponCon. This is not me saying it in a paid way. But we've all read lots of books about comedy. This is a book about writing jokes and the specific techniques that Adam's been using for three decades, and also sharing with people with whom he writes and co-writes for all sorts of famous comics and celebrities and what have you. He's written for. Um, He is incredibly adept in this book at explaining techniques that you may even already be using, but you don't know why. There's so much stuff he talks about, which is sort of it's almost instinctive and you might have noticed it or not. And if you if you have, he can help you do it better. And if you haven't, he can tell you what you're doing and where you're going wrong. Uh, this this book has to be on your shelf. If you're remotely interested in comedy writing, you have to get this book. Don't just take it from me. Uh, let's hear it from the man himself. And I'm also, before we get stuck in, giddily excited because uh, I've been recording the blurbs uh, for this. I, I call these blurbs. Uh, I've been recording the blurbs for this podcast for 12 years on Audacity. And I've just updated it. And it looks all shiny and new. So if you're a podcaster, why not update Audacity? I'm sure it'll turn out not to have some sort of uh, thing I've been relying on for years and I'll have to roll it back. But for now, oh, look at it. It's it's still clunky and 90s looking, but in a slightly different way. Bless you, Audacity. Um, so you can join the Insiders Club, but you won't get any extras from this episode because I've put it all out here. We've got about an hour and ten of the wonderful Adam Bloom, but you must go. I think you can only buy it on Amazon. Uh, we'll discuss that. Um, uh, it's called Finding Your Comic Genius, and you must, must, must read it. Adam's going to tell us why. You're looking very muscular, Adam. Have you been have you been lifting weights? Bloody hell! Wow! <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> how long's that been the case? I know it's been years since you were on the podcast. Six. But uh, how long have you been buff as hell? I got into fitness six years ago, and I've kept it up even through three lockdowns. Um, Amazing. So I, it took me eleven months to get in what I would say would be good shape. 
Oh my God. And when you say good shape, you're specifically, that's not just like running and hit workouts, like you're actively lifting weights, are you? Lifting weights. I went running today as well. I, I run, Julian um, Dean got me into running. Okay. Um, oh, sorry, Russell Hicks. Sorry, Russell Hicks. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know why that happened. Um, but yeah, I was a bit, I was getting chubby, midlife crisis, and just, and then gradually just got my body to go like that. Oh, nice! That was yeah. uh, for the benefit of the listener. That was an inversion of a triangle with the point. And we started. And we started. Yeah, yeah. Why not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll just. We basically. The idea is, you and I just have a lovely catch-up chat. We talk about the book, and then at the end, I go right. Now, shall we start? And then it's like a sort of joke version. Oh, well, now, that, well, now I have to apologise to Julian Dean, um, to Russell Hicks, for doing it again. Uh, yeah. I apologise for calling him Julian Dean, but yeah, Russell Hicks got me into running. Yes, They're, but fortunately, Julian Dean and Russell Hicks are both excellent comedians in very different yes. ways. And they very wouldn't different be, ways. They wouldn't be insulted that you'd mix them up, I don't think. <laughs> it's, a, it's a curio. So, I, listen, you, you said yourself when we began this, uh, this Zoom call some technical minutes ago, it's been 12 years. You were episode six. Yep. That's extraordinary. We've seen each other since then, but not with the sort of intensity of that two-hour conversation we had in the top that kind of top room, that study of your house in wherever it was, Epsom, was it? Yeah, that was my favourite interview I'd ever done, and I buzzed for about two hours after that interview. Oh, man, we really too. connected. We really connected. And um, the best great. thing, I tell you what came from it, you asked me about the writing process, and I said I don't really sit down and write unless I write for other people. And you went, well, let's talk about that then. And yeah. I'd written for 18 people then, yeah. and because of the podcast, I probably got 10 writing jobs, even in other countries. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Great. So thank you. Great, you. you're you're, so, you're incredibly welcome. This is like I think that was such that was such an early interview in the life of the podcast that it was one that really helped me clarify my kind of goals for the podcast, which has now been going for years and years and years and years. Let's let's do before we I, I, what I want to kind of peg for later discussion is your book, which I want to get into some detail on. And it is, I think, going to be one of the... It's going to be regarded in years to come as probably the only real book about jokes. Because wow. it is... It's, it's, mate, you must know how good it is. Do you get I, how good it is? Well, it's very hard to look at your own work subjectively because I, you know, I, know what, I already knew what I was saying. But when I, I asked Rich Hall, who was... When Rich Hall came over in 95 with an Emmy under his belt, he was a god to me. I mean... He made everyone else look like they were just having a go at comedy. Yeah. He, it, really, it really did. He was this, this giant appeared and everyone was in awe of him. And I, I, I wanted to quote him and I asked his permission and asked if the wording was correct. And he wrote back and said, I think I need to read this book. You say stuff about comedy I didn't even realise. And that's when I realised I was tapping into something. Because yes. that I couldn't ask for more. From him, nobody, I mean, absolute God to me. And that sentence was perfect. So I used it on the back of the book. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's just brilliant. I want, to get, I want to get really, really into it. Before we do that, it's been 12 years. We've seen each other sort of at, at gigs here and there since. And we, what else besides physical fitness and being really kind of like spit take, spit take buff now, I would say that you're like, I really went, oh my God, that was really buff. <laughs> besides that, what's been going on? What's been going on in your, to a certain extent, your life? What's been going on in your your comedy practice? Like I had a quick scan over a, a transcript I've got of our uh, first interview and we talked a bit about 
you know, your origins in comedy. We talked a bit about Montreal. I remember you made that lovely um, analogy about skipping. <laughs> and I remember memorably you said, well, you know, I just love skipping, telling jokes. It's just writing, telling jokes. It's just skipping. And then you know, I think by the end of the interview, you said, of course, if I could get back on telly, I'd skip with three cocks in my mouth. <laughs> 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 um, you know, so we that, that was a, a, a man and a comic there who was pretty settled in your your position in comedy you were like i'm i write for people and with people i write for myself i perform my stuff myself you were kind of embodying a a comedy career of like the sort of top level of people that aren't famous famous that's a nice way of putting it um i so the writing took off i mean i i genuinely thank you for that because <coughs> i've written for over 50 people now yeah and i suppose but six or seven of them are household names. One of them's globally known and has got an Oscar nomination. I've worked on 29 projects with that person. Yes. From... I know who that is because you see yes, told I'm not me. Allowed but to I, say, and I've yeah, never yeah, yeah. told anyone. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. very proud Thank to have maintained that. Yeah. It's a bit, I mean, I, some, bit, I, I, some comedians talk about who they write for, and I think that person probably doesn't like this because, you know, you, you, ghostwriting is. Ghostwriters do not get additional material credits on DVDs because mm. you're making someone look good secretly. You know, like a stunt, stunt double. You know, it's not... I mean, a stunt double probably would get credit. But my point is that when you watch a comedian, you don't want to think they've had help because you're just enjoying them. And I, I've heard that Richard Pryor even had a writer. OK. Which okay. is hard to imagine because it's so heartfelt. Does that change... When you heard that, did that change your opinion of Richard Pryor? I just hoped that it wasn't the bits that were felt from the heart because I, I, I think of him as such a ridiculously honest and trailblazing comedian, trailblazing. I, I just hoped it was just little gags here and there rather than the, the you know, I, I'd hate to think that someone said, why don't you pretend to feel this? Because that would ruin sure. it, yeah. But I don't think that was the case. I think there's, there's, there's areas you'd have, he would have help with and areas he wouldn't, I hope. Yeah. And do you think when you write... Um, with someone like I've sort of since since we last spoke on this podcast I've kind of adopted this theory about directing more so than writing which is that it's incredibly difficult to help someone I've just worked with uh, Deck Monroe I don't know if you know Deck um, he's he's directed lots of comedy shows for uh, very and, and done very well and been you know had lots of his acts get a, you know nominated for things or what have you um, but he was really good at helping me create what I wanted to create rather than helping me create what he thought I should be creating. That's and I wonder great. if there's a, there's a parallel in writing whereby... To, just to sort of talk to me about that. I'm not quite sure what the question is, but you, you know what I'm driving at. Like, I think of your type of comedy. I watched some of your more recent stuff on Reels, like we talked about, and it's, it's, it's very, very you, you know, and you can... It's so funny reading that. We'll come back to the book, but reading the book and seeing your stuff about word smuggling and going, oh, that's what he's doing there. That Yes, of course, that, that breath and pauses and all those sort of things, the things you describe, you're really, really living them. When you're writing with or for other people, do you just, just talk to me about that kind of sphere of making sure that they're saying what they want to say in a them way that you're helping with rather than them saying what you want them to say or helping them say what they want to say in a you way? Well, the, the, a big thing I cover in my book um, is I I'm not trying to turn you into me. So, for yeah. example, I would always have clip sounds at the end of a sentence so that it's nice and punchy, dup, 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 like that. Okay. Now, if you're what, what, style, when, you say, when you say a dup sound, is that a, that's a rhythmic thing rather than like a K on the end of the word kayak kind of a thing? I mean, it's, it's both. I would, I, would, 
I like my punchlines to make it very clear on the last syllable that it ending, it's ending there, whereas some people have soft sounds and I talk about the consistency. I don't want you to do what I do, but if you do it differently to me, make that consistent. So Jeff Green, for example, has his punchlines are in the middle of the sentence and he talks very quietly after the funny word. So you know where the funny bit is, but he, he mumbles underneath it. Yes. Now, that's a very unusual style. And if I notice somebody has soft sounds on their punchlines, I would deliberately write soft sounds to suit their style. And um, if, if uh, Mary Burke said to me, oh, I watched someone's Edinburgh preview and... Um, I worked out that you wrote on it. And I said, well, that's actually a failing because they recognise my yeah. material. That's a failing. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a small failure if they're similar to me. It's a big failure if they're very different to me. So yeah. when I write for somebody, somebody I, I've known for, oh God, 28 years, and they said to me, oh, I want to do some work with you. And they, they told me a couple of ideas down the phone and I did toppers in their voice because I'm so used to how they think. I mean, you know, Think of your best friend. If you're in a situation where there was conflict, you know what you'd say, but you can imagine, let's say, they're quick to anger, and you you know how they'd say it. You can almost think the witty comment they'd say. And once you start to think like somebody else, it's almost like a sitcom writer. What would Seinfeld say? What would Kramer say in that moment? Well, we all know what Kramer would have said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but so the point is that it's it's just slipping inside, almost in a trance, and becoming that person thinking how they think. The reason it's easier to write for someone who's got ideas already is I'm already in the flow of the idea and I just jump on it and go with it. Whereas if I look at a blank screen and you say to me, right, I want you to write 10 minutes for me, that's really hard. Mm. Like mm. brand new material is a, for someone else is a really hard thing to do, but adding on it and have you have you done that? Is that ever the brief? Yes. Write new yes. material for someone. That to me, yes. that sort of seems to be so far removed from the point of that person being a comic. Like, I don't want to... I'm not slagging anyone off here. I just, like, I know what I get out of comedy. And I love the idea of being helped and assisted and guided, like, with anything. Do you know what I mean? Like, like you're learning a martial art or you're learning to drill a hole properly in a, in a thing. <laughs> Stu betrays his lack of uh, <laughs> skill. What? Drilling a hole in a thing, you know, like men do. Um, but, but so assistance is one thing. And then, like, I need some stuff. Can you think of a subject and then write about it on my behalf? Yes. That seems like the, quite a far way removed. It is far removed. The thing is, this would never be somebody who's heartfelt. This wouldn't be somebody who's pouring the heart out. You know, it'd, it'd be all, we're back to the Richard Pryor thing. No one's ever said to me, uh, my mum died when I was six. Can you talk about that, please? No, sure. I mean, that would be so insincere, wouldn't it? So, especially when they start crying on stage. <laughs> <laughs> cry now. Adam says yeah, pause yeah. and then cry. I like to start berating them because you, your tear came at the wrong moment. A, <laughs> the bloom pop didn't happen at the right time. Um, um, the, so, yes, yeah, so I think when somebody says, can you write me? I mean, some people have got plenty of money and not much time. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they're renting my brain because they know it's easier for them to do it that way. Um, some people, some up-and-coming people probably feel that they're, they're, they need a lift and that lift's going to come from someone helping them. But the, the truth is, for, for longevity, you need, you need to be able to write for yourself, I think. Yes. Are there times when, um, when it hasn't worked? Like without, because obviously I don't want you to name any of the the people. But what are the things like you said with um, Mary Burke having said to you, "I have you written for that person?" You regard yeah. that as a failing. Are there what other sorts of things can go wrong 
when trying to... Presumably, there are things where you write a joke for someone and you go, cracked it, that's, that's the one. And they go, oh, I don't like that joke. And you're uh, going, well, yeah. come on, it's brilliant. <laughs> you know? I've had... I've had lengthy debates and eventually I've, I've been told, like, you, you are aware that it's my decision. I'm like, you've got to do it. I, I'm not doing it, but you've got to do it. But this is where my passion comes because if I create this little baby and I want it to live and grow and the person says no, I, 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 part of me dies inside because I'm never going to see it live. And if, if it doesn't suit me to do it, then it's never going to live. That, that's, that's frustrating, the hours of stuff that never got done. But that, I think that... Um, I've lost my train of thought here. Oh, yes. If I write, so I've stopped writing for people who I believe haven't got a defined persona okay. because I can't hang it on. So in my book, I say that a persona is a tree and the jokes are the leaves growing out of that tree. And if there's no persona, you're just left with a load of leaves on the floor because the every, like Woody Allen summed it up in one sentence, a comedian's a funny person doing material and not a person doing funny material. Mm-hmm. And that is, what I love is he's written some of the best material in the world and yet he's still saying being a funny person is the thing. So therefore, if, you're, if someone hasn't got persona, where do I, what do I hang the jokes on? Have you, ever, have you ever had to do that because you liked someone or you needed the money? or like, Have you ever broken that rule where you've kind of gone, I, I, will, I will do my best for them, but I know that this isn't what I do best? No, um, since working out that that's the problem, yeah. seeing the recurring problem being if they haven't got a persona, I, I, I've had to say to people, I don't, I don't go, you haven't got a persona. Sure. I go, I just don't feel like I know you enough, or I'm not going to say you haven't got a persona, but I, I would say something diplomatic. Um, it, it, I, I, now, I hope, God, it worries me. I'm listening to this going, oh, now I know what you think. Oh, but, no, fine. And, and, and throughout, we can, if you are concerned about that, say so at the time and we'll, we'll tweak it or, or like just say it differently or eradicate it whatsoever. Well, I actually, mean, I'm sure people will know there are many reasons why someone might go, it's not the right fit. Yeah, and also, if they're listening, hopefully they've, they've since developed. I, mean, I, I, did, I, was, I, I, was, I did say it to one person because they were very new, and I said, look, because you're allowed to sell some six months in, you haven't found your voice yet, but ten years in, it's a, it's a worry. Um, but, yeah, I, no, I, I've... I've I've need I've you know my my finances go up and down as as most comedians do. I've never reached a stage where I'm prepared to take someone's money and know that it's not going to work out. No, and I th- I, I that would be on my conscience. I I I wouldn't be able to do that. No, you got you know, and also I've got to enjoy my work. You know, it the the biggest buzz is sitting face to face with someone for the first time and just sparking, and then suddenly between and and of course <clears throat> here's another thing as well. I talked about. Um, it being easy to hang ideas on existing ideas. What happened the other day was I went, that would be better like this maybe. And they went, well, how about that then in that case? And they built on my build mm-hmm. and it just went, bang, 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 and it was just like, then suddenly this beautiful thing developed and it happened in a space of two minutes. Their idea tweaked, they tweaked my idea. And it was just, it was wonderful. And when you can do that over four hours, uh, it, yeah, it's, it's great. And then suddenly 10, 10 minutes of material has been developed in four hours. So this is Adam, an absolute delight to talk to comedy's own boy. He's kind of inside of comedy and made of it. And and as we will discuss, the connection he feels to something infinite when minting a joke or performing a joke is enormously inspiring. I speak to him on this episode about 
you know, my own feelings about having been in the game for a while and how maybe the 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 shine sometimes comes off it. And I think his answer is uh, is is an extraordinary and wonderful thing. And I found it very inspiring on the subject of being inspired. And we'll return to the show in a moment. Uh, I was lucky enough to go and see Auntie Donna on their live tour last night. I saw them at the Forum in Bath. They absolutely tore the roof off and I'm so proud of them and so proud to call them friends. They, If you haven't listened to the Auntie Donna episodes, I might even like put the first one back out for fun coming up as a, as a concompendium. Um, they are, they're, they're an incredible act and it is wonderful to see such anarchy be so consistently funny for like an hour and a half. I'm sure the tour is completely sold out. I think it all sold out on day one. They've got the Netflix special, a huge YouTuber subscriber base and everything else they do. Um, but if you get the chance to see it, just kill for a ticket. And what was a joy uh, in particular was that in Bath, I saw Elf Lions uh, doing support. Elf is known to the podcast. She's uh, you'll, you'll remember the episode with her. Fantastic, clowny, theatre maker flavoured comic. I'd never seen her do a club set, I realised, when I saw her come on and absolutely spank a club set in a colossal room to an audience of fans of someone else, which is not always a, an easy gig. And uh, and she really, really took the roof off. I, I was so, so impressed. And um, and it, it's, it reminded me that the, the boxes into which we put people are just how did my how did how did how did Dobbing say it? He says you meet someone and you tell yourself a story about that person, and then uh, you deal with that person as if they are that story about them that you're telling yourself. Um, but they're not necessarily they're their own thing. And it reminded me of that because to see someone who I associate with sort of beautiful, intricate, very funny kind of character driven, clowny hour long shows take all of those skills and just let them all loose on on half an hour or so in in front of this roaring audience the voice i mean you remember the, the gareth reynolds episode last week you i said to gareth reynolds you can he's such a layered and textured improviser you can tell what hat his characters are wearing from their voices same deal with elf oh my god blew me away blew me away anyway talking of bloomy <laughs> yeah maybe um let's get back to adam bloom this is um this is I, i'm just loving it i'm just going to sit here listening back to this and absolutely loving it. Find the book on Amazon. It's called Finding Your Comic Genius. You can't not have it. I don't know. Should I run a competition or something? Just that, you don't need any incentive. This, if you buy one book about comedy, make it this. It is, if you, if you like me are aligned with sort of a, a, a delight in technical aspects of joke writing, this book is unique and you cannot not have one. All right, let's get back to Adam Bloom. Where does your ego feature in this, in terms of the ego of the performing? When when you perform your own stuff and everyone's looking at you and clapping for you and laughing at you, um, where does your ego go when you are you're creating the beautiful little baby of a joke and then giving it to someone? Are you happy for that to be anonymous? Because you because is your ego satisfied by the the creation of the work? We, we, do you know what's funny? We talked about this 12 years ago in a funny way. It was a beautiful arc because the very first question you asked me was, do you have to be a comedian? Yes. And I said, yes. Yes, because when and you it, first became a comedian, the white noise in your head stopped. I remember wow, that. Yeah, wow. yeah, I remember that very vividly, yeah. 400 and something episodes. And you can <laughs> yeah, I my that's answer. not well, even from the transcript. I absolutely remember that moment, yeah. Well, it, the, I mean, if someone's keen enough to listen to the other episode, six, um, it at the very end, 
we talked about writing and then I concluded that I didn't have to be a comedian as long as I'm putting something creative out there in the world. Yes. And that, as pretentious as that might sound, is actually what matters. Being on stage and getting that thrill is amazing. But the, the, the thing I need to do is be creative. Yes. Here's a question that might go nowhere because of, because of the way I'm, I'm feeling about it. I wonder, I've got to try and say this in a way that means I can leave it in without being negative about myself. Uh, having, uh, and this is, this is a sentence I probably overuse, I feel, because of not only my own gigs, but also this podcast, I feel like I have drunk pretty deeply from the well of stand-up comedy over the last 12 years, 18 years, of you know, all, all told. I sometimes find that the buzz wears off a bit fast, a bit too fast these days after a gig. And I've made, barely made it to the car before I'm thinking, all right, what's next? You know, um, yeah. I feel like I have less ego these days. I have less need. I'm less desperate. I'm happier. I've done a lot of therapy and I, I need to be a comedian a bit less, I think. Right. And although I would never say that I'm bored of comedy, I did get into it in order to have, I realise, I think I got into it in order to have adventures and, and novelty. And different and stuff. There's no one left to sleep with, is there? <laughs> there is no one. There's no. There are. There are plenty of rooms left I haven't been in. But of the rooms that I'm in, I'm pretty used to those rooms now. And yeah. even the even the incredible multiplicity of you know, and the infinite number. I mean, you'll know better than I do how many. Uh, uh, how many possibilities you can get out of 52 cards in a deck, how many possible orders. Even bigger than that, the amount of different people in a room you can play to. I sometimes have found myself thinking, maybe I need a bit of a break from this because it's just this again. For, for me, that break has almost come in the form of a big change. I've started writing a lot of comedy recently about the climate and the climate crisis, very specific climate stuff. And that has been so difficult that it's been a fresh challenge and that's kind of kept me going. I suppose the question is, are you ever bored, I suppose, by the familiarity or the routine or the regularity of the types of experiences that you have? Well, well I, I remember during the last stages of writing my book, I was on stage to 400 people and it was that roaring, storming atmosphere. And I wasn't excited because I almost felt that this right now, this isn't the most important thing for me. And I came off stage quite angry with myself. I thought... You are not going to give the best performance if 400 people screaming with laughter isn't exciting. Because that hunger in, in a younger comedian of getting that, you know, once you start storming when you're younger and you're newer, rather, you ride it. You go, oh, my God, this is the best thing in the world. And you are going to give the best performance. It's very dangerous if you have an audience roaring with laughter and you risk letting that slip because you're not as excited as they are. Especially with my persona, because I'm, I'm excitable and, and frenetic. So when I had that moment, I had, a, I, had, I, had a little, I had a little talk with myself and went, you can never take for granted a room of people really enjoying you because you owe it to them to give them the best gig you can do. Um, so I, I, that, was a, that was a real, a, a, a very important moment. And it was only, this was only two weeks ago. Hmm. And I remember thinking, uh, it was three weeks ago, and I remember thinking, this is a very, you know, you talk about hungry young people in, in any industry, you know, who, who want it? You don't ever want to be a, a comedian on a bill who doesn't have, who has the. Imagine having the worst gig of the night because everyone else wanted it and you didn't. 
That's mm. awful. That's that's t- that's time to consider stopping, in my opinion. If that happens, mm. if that repeatedly happens, mm. then it's a job, and comedy should never be a job. It should be a, a lifestyle connected to your love of an art form. Yes. You know, I I remember once jonglers were pe- doing the Christmas parties and they were paying one and a half times the normal rate, and one of the comedians went, oh, oh, "It's time and a half, isn't it?" And I thought, "Don't you know? You're not in an j- office job." Time and a half, what they say when you're a bartender on New Year's Eve, and the boss says, right, it's time and a half. By the way, I love being a bartender, but nonetheless, it was a job. So a comedian saying time and a half is a real sign that they're going to work. Yes, okay. Time and a half. Yes, okay, but we are going to work. Like, there is a, there's an industry element, and you might imagine that the, the jongler's Christmas gigs are like, okay, this isn't going <laughs> to be the fun time where you get to, uh, you know, flex your comedy muscles necessarily. You know, you're, you're going to be... It might feel more work-person-like under those circumstances. Imagine, imagine having a card and having to clock in by the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of Henning's old beginning where he used to start his timer. There was oh, did he? his neck, do you remember? Yeah, it was very funny. No, no, never saw it. But yeah, okay, I, I, I suppose that I should be more forgiving of that sentence. But back to the point, it, it, when you're on stage having a good gig to an audience you really want to be there, it should never, ever feel like a job. It's, yeah. that is, it's art. Art isn't a job. Imagine Picasso going, oh, God, three more hours, I can stop this painting. <laughs> he, may have, he may have thought that. No, no! <laughs> no! Well, I... well why, why is it... Oh, go on. What were you going to say? I want to read you a, I want to read you a Picasso quote. Yeah. Listen, listen to this, right? I, give me a second. Um, okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, you can edit the pause out, right? Of course. Right. This is Picasso. We artists are indestructible. Even in a prison or concentration camp, I would be almighty in my own world of art. Even if I had to paint my pictures with my wet tongue on the dusty floor of my cell. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a great quote. The question is, why is that so important to you? What is it? Like, obviously, that is a wonderful, romantic, exciting, God, not romantic, you know, sentimental, vivid sort of earthy kind of a quote, writing, you know, it's very, very evocative and what have you. Why is it so important to you that you can get to it on your phone in a couple of seconds? Because I, I picture Picasso in a cell, locked in a small cell. Dust as well. The dust is beautiful yeah, because dust is a sign it's not looked after, right? And he leans forward with his tongue and he makes little shapes. And as he looks at this thing, he feels he is massive... And the world is under him. Yes. So the, the world's the prison, and he's God looking down at the world, this complete switch around, and he's looking at this thing, the power that he has, because when he creates something, he can look at that dust and go, I created something amazing. And of course, a Picasso in dust would be worth a fortune. For sure, yes. I mean, I know the value of it's actually irrelevant, because being almighty, is, actually you can be an unknown artist and be almighty. So the, but my point is... Forget the value of that thing. He, in fact, the values are completely irrelevant. He can look down at his work of brilliance and feel almighty. And great. More. Drill more into that. Why for you? Um, I've got a really nice tongue. <laughs> why do you? Why do you? Why are you so electrified by that concept of art? 
making you powerful? Because it doesn't matter how tough your life is, when you're on stage in the zone, you have no problems. So the prison cell is, for me, is represents the, the, the trouble life can throw at you and the, the art on the floor represents me doing something creative. So I've gone through lots of bad stuff since I last saw you. And yeah. when, I, when I'm on stage, doesn't matter how bad things are, I'm almighty in that moment. Okay. Thank you. That was a great answer. Oh, um, wonderful. I'm, I'm interested in... I suppose I have an interviewer's interest in the lots of bad stuff you've gone through, but only so much as it pertains to the discussion. I mean, there's a danger with podcasting. You go, go on, cry, and then I'll record <laughs> it and video it, and then we'll get some, we'll get some hits. <laughs> well, I, w- I, w- I would talk about the problem, but my writer's off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that bad stuff has been happening. Like, such is life, I guess. Um, let's talk about your... Because that, that kind of... I don't know. I, I, let, I want to get stuck into the book next. I'm just wondering if there's anything else on that. I mean, it's such a good, like, painting in the dust with your tongue. Mm. Your, how much of your output feels like it is sort of exploding with that concept? Like, is it, do you get that kind of connection to the infinite with, on some level with every joke? Or is it a case of, some of these jokes are fine, but if it's bang, that's one. Woof, there it is. I'm, I'm writing in the dust with my tongue. Well, I mean, not every, every joke you write can't be your best joke, right? It can't, it can't be. But you have to have a quality control bar and you have to go, you know, does it fit my persona? Could anyone have thought of it? And, and um, I, I think that when, you have an, when I have an idea that I feel is in the top, top range, let's say there's A, B and C. When I come out with an A, and I'm, I was at Top Secret the other day, and I did a brand new joke, and I closed on a brand new, I was a new material, and I, I closed on a brand new joke, and it got that, woof, the whole room like that. That's the best feeling you can have as a comedian. A brand new joke, killing first time. It doesn't happen very often. You know, you, I've done brand new jokes, I've got silence. You know, that documentary comedian with Jerry Seinfeld, mm. he gets a standing ovation walking on, and he does a joke to complete silence, and an English girl in the audience in New, new York goes, is this your first time? Which is a brutal, <laughs> brutal heckle. I was quite proud of England when she said because I think it was a very English comment. I don't think yeah, American, yeah. Americans are too supportive. You know, like, sure, Jerry, sure. go Jerry, go Jerry. She's like, yeah. this is your first time you know, to the biggest comedian on the planet at the time. But So yeah, the, I mean, the, the, a brand new joke. I, I, I wish I was more prolific than I am. Um, but a brand new joke killing is the most almighty feeling. I don't, I don't mean almighty as in, oh, look at me, I'm powerful. It's a connection. You've connected with the world. And, um, you know, let's, let's take the word almighty out of this. His point, is, his point, the reason he's almighty was because they're oppressing him, but they can't. That's yes. the point, right? Yes. You cannot oppress me because I create. So forget me. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not being locked into top secret that night. I was popped down and the feeling of connecting, you're, you, that's, you're communicating ideas. That's all you're doing, isn't it? That's what's done. You're communicating ideas. And when the idea hits bang, uh, and the audience fit perfectly in their brains with what you wanted to get across, it's, it's the best feeling. And, and writing, a, writing a book, by the way, I spent eight months, it's 100,000 words, I spent eight months writing it. The, the, the feedback, and the reviews, I've, I've had 15 uh, reviews on Amazon, they're all, they're all five stars, obviously that, that won't sustain forever, but the wording of the reviews, the, 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 the longer, more articulate ones, they've confirmed that I've achieved exactly 
what I set out to achieve. I suppose if you wrote a feature film, you watched it at cinema, and people cried at all the moments you wanted them to cry, that, that would be the same thing. And I, I cannot tell you, like, I would honestly rather make a small amount of money and get those reviews than having, having made, make a fortune from it and, it, and not, the feedback not be what I wanted. I don't, I don't want people, I don't want to sell a million copies and people go, yeah, I quite liked it, it did this for me. And that. Sure. The things people are saying, you know, you're, you're communicating something, you're going, I, this is how, what I want people to get from this. And when they're getting it, I, I, it's, the best, it's, the, it's my greatest achievement in my life um, creatively. And I, if anyone's thinking of writing a book, I've just got to say, you've got to start writing it. Simple as that. Because once you start, if you do get the bug, you won't be able to stop. I, when I pressed click for it to be uploaded on Amazon, I had a sinking feeling because I didn't have a project anymore. Yes, yes. Well, we were saying this in, over the phone, weren't we, that you were saying... Um... Oh, I miss having a book to write. And I said, maybe a second book. And I think your answer was, uh, uh, I've got nothing left. I've got nothing yeah. left to say. Like that would, no. no, you said it much more positively that. You said that book is everything I know. Yes, it is. It so, really is. So let's, let's get into some detail on it. I, as I, <laughs> when, we, when I started reading it, I, it, it became aware very, very quickly that I had never read anything like it because it is so densely packed with... Thoughts that to you, I'm sure, seem obvious, but which I've never read anywhere else. We all know there are books about how to be a comedian and comedy writing, easy steps to comedy writing. And those, those, I, I haven't read all of them and I haven't finished many of them <laughs> or maybe maybe any of them. Um, I'm not a book learning kind of a person, but they seem to all the other ones to sort of to be saying the same sort of a thing. This book, you are inventing, coining, minting, throwing out conceptual stuff over and over and over again in those first probably in the first I don't know what 10 20 pages you'll know better than me when you are talking about balloon pops seesaws word smuggling the way that jokes are either cubes or spheres and what that means I feel like I, I felt like I'd opened a, a um, opened a kind of a rift into a, a sort of a technical world I remember 12 years ago you described the way you see a joke as a scale electric track on this mm. podcast, and you would understand the the shape of it and see it in this kind of a beautiful mind kind of way. You know, you, it would come to life. I feel like you have succeeded. For, I've not finished the book, but all the bits of it I've read, I feel like you have succeeded in letting us in on not only precisely how you see rhythm and flow and word choice and syntax and pauses and everything. Not not only letting us in on how you see it but also providing us with a manual to recreate it. It is astonishing, Adam. I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually quite teary. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, not lay, I'm not laying this on because you're here and we're friends. And, and it, it's like no other book I've ever seen on comedy. It's like you are talking about things I've never heard anyone talk about, let alone write down. I'm, I'm crying. It's really good, man. It's really, really fucking I've never, good. I've never cried on a podcast before. <laughs> we got him. We got the tears. <laughs> Show's can over. Can you see? <laughs> yeah, it, I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a tiny one. I, I've got a few. I had to wipe it to prove it existed. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean every word of it. It is, it's a thrill. As a creative person who understands, to what I now feel is a very limited extent, how, how my jokes work, I, I can... I can't articulate how some of my jokes work. You can, and you can share it and help other people understand theirs. Let's, let's talk about 
Give us an example of one of those things. Which, which one of those would you like to share? I don't want to disincentivize people from, from reading the book for themselves. So I don't want you to go into too much detail. But I think anyone who's made it this far into this episode is like, I'm going to immediately buy this. And they should. Tell us uh, about uh, one of those things and we'll, we'll uh, pull it apart. OK, so, so f- first of all, everything I break down... Uh, is with the intention of you benefiting from it. There's never me just strutting, going, look, look what I know. Not There's always no. a, this is how you can use it. This is where, where it benefits you. Showing where, you know, a joke has got two interpretations, therefore it can be confusing if someone comes out the wrong exit of the maze and how to block off the, the exit of the maze you don't want them to come out of. That, I think, is very uh, beneficial. Um, triple punches, there's a chapter called Triple Punches, yes. where I, I broke down a Rich Hall joke. Well, um... The, the the rich the rich hall joke, which which blew me away when I was uh, twenty five years old, twenty four years old. He he talked about um, I can't, I wish I could do his voice because it's such a lovely gruff voice. <laughs> but he said every every um, Christmas when I was a kid, I used to spend hours making my mum a present. And uh, one year I I wrapped it up and put it under the tree. And the next morning she she picked up and she shook it and went, "Oh, what is it?" I said, well, "It was a picture of the Last Supper on an etch sketch." <laughs> Right, it's just beautiful, right? It's and wonderful. obviously, you know, it's visual shaking it and the rich's voice, but that's a triple punch because on the word etch-a-sketch, on the last word of the joke, you have to make the connection between shaking a present and shaking etch sketch to erase everything. Mm-hmm. You get a visual image of the last sup on an etch-a-sketch, right? And you have the emotion of empathy for the effort he's put in that's now completely wasted, and, right? And, and the fact that it was wasted benevolently. <laughs> Do you yes. mean no one and, came along yeah. and kicked over his sandcastle? She was, she was excited. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, 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 also, etch-a-sketch is a, a funny word. It yep. also creates nostalgia. So that she, yep. there's a lot going on. So forget the nostalgia and fact that it's a funny word. At that moment, we have an emotional hit, mm-hmm. empathy. We have a visual image. The Last Supper on an etch-a-sketch. It's Christmassy as well. <laughs> 13 people... 13 people, you can't, you can't draw that quickly. You, you can't draw 13 <laughs> stick men quickly. But the visual image of The Last Supper, uh, such an uh, iconic painting, on an sketch in grey, grey little lines. It's beautiful, right? So what I did was I rewrote the joke so that there was no triple punch. So okay. it was, it was I, I can't remember that. It was like, um, I remember one Christmas, I made a picture of The Last Supper on an sketch for my mum. And the next morning, she, I wrapped up and she went, oh, what is it, right? Yeah. That, that's, that in itself is a good enough joke, yeah. right? Yeah. There's no triple punch. Because the sure. image of the extra check comes early. We haven't found out it took ages to do it, so there's no real empathy. Just, just a bit, I mean, we're sorry for you. But there's only one joke. Yeah. She shook it and disappeared. Putting those three things at the same time, we, we're overloaded, and we get the emotional and the visual and the cerebral, as in the cerebral, the shaking, mm-hmm. All at once. And that's a happy explosion in our minds. And to feel that for, for Rich, oh, hours of work, while visualising that, it's, this is why it's brilliant. Because everything happens at once. Boom! Yeah. And if you can triple punch people, like when I used to watch great comedians when I was new, I used to think, they're really brilliant. What, what are they doing? I, I, what they were often doing was double and triple punches on a regular basis. So you're just being, you know, you watch Steve, I saw Stephen Wright on one of those sort of Letman type chat shows. He just talked about his day and it was all crafted material. Mm. And it was something about a snake in chocolate. And I can't, I can't remember. It just went boom, boom, boom. I just like, it showered me with, 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 um, brilliant thoughts. And it, if you, you watch somebody doing, you know, laborious setups, 
with no excitement, no visual image, just I did this, I went to the shops and then this, and then I said something witty to the girl at Greg's who was only doing her job properly because I, <laughs> I outwitted her because, ah, two for one, what if I get that one there? And I beat her. Go, girl's done nothing wrong to you and you're outwitting and boasting about how clever you are to outwit a child on uh, who's only following instructions. And there's nothing. There's just this absolutely just words, 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 you know, cramming. My book's about showing you how much can be achieved in, in a few seconds and to string that out all the way, string that out, it's the wrong phrase, to do that all the way through an hour show. Yes. And just pointing out, you know, nice collection of sounds, um, flow, rhythm. The seesaw theory is... See, the reason I, I, I wrote this book was because two things. There was never... There's no books on doing comedy better. They're all about how to do it. So this is a book for comedians, but yes. the, the, the people who have not done stand-up are giving it good reviews. And they, I was really worried that people would go, it's way too advanced, one star. But the fact of the matter is that people who are new, I, I ran everything by my 80-year-old mother that I felt was complicated. Okay, okay. And I, and I said, it, I, I figured it, it's, not, it's not 80 means you're... My point was she's, she's not into comedy. Sure. And only once did I have to change something because she felt it went a bit convoluted and I just made it clear, but... She was my check. If, if my mum, who doesn't want to be a comedian, can understand it, then someone who wants to be a comedian, who knows more about comedy than my mum, probably yeah. will. So, but the thing is, it's, the, the target market is people who have been doing comedy for, I suppose, at least a year. But yes. However, there are 17 chapters on writing that are labelled with writing, so you could just read the writing first, or make notes to the bits you don't understand and go back when you've done a few gigs. Because 20 gigs is a, a hell of a lot of knowledge more than someone who's never been on stage before. Yes, yes, of course. Um, but the, but the other thing was, because um, there's an analogy I use, um, because I've written for so many people, I've had to learn to explain why I've changed something of theirs. So they'll go, why is that better? And I have to go right into my head and go, well... Uh, yes, and then I yes, came yes. up with like, the, the seesaw theory, which is about the amount of syllables either side of a pause. Uh, when there's a pause in a punchline, I've noticed that there has to be more noticeably more syllables on one side of the seesaw than the other side, so it has to tip one way or the other. So... I realised that, and my, I credit my mum for this. My mum said that um, your your name, I'm afraid, is not a seesaw. Stuart Goldsmith no, I know. is 2-2. Two, two. Oh, yeah. bane, bane of my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I, I, I used to think of that in terms of um, authors' names on books. Stephen King. Do you know what I mean? There you like, that's the seesaw. Yeah, perfect. Stuart Goldsmith. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah you, you, but I can only you, shorten it. The only thing I could do is shorten it to Stu. Stu Goldsmith. Which people, all my yeah, friends and, call me Stu. Yeah. But it's not. Oh, it's, just, it's just there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Stu, I it's not a punchy name, is it? No, I don't think you're a Stu to look at as well. I think you're a Stuart. But, but the thing is, I think <laughs> if, if your parents have called you John, your career might be going a lot better. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, so that, the, yeah, the seesaw, my mum came up with it because she said one syllable surnames go better with longer uh, surnames yes. and vice versa. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, yeah, so. Um, the, so the, the, I realised that things like the sh- seesaw theory, because someone would go, well, why, why is that better? And I have to think about it. So the analogy I use is we've all tied a shoelace 10,000 times, but if you had to describe over the phone how to tie a shoelace, it would be very hard without holding a shoelace in your hands. So I, I, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. 
you, I mean, think about you. You do. I know. I, funnily yeah. enough, last weekend I tried to teach my son to tie his shoelaces, and for some reason he is absolutely rejecting because he doesn't wear shoes with laces. He's like, "Why would I need to do this?" And he's also a bit of a perfectionist, which we're trying to deal with. But he's just he will not engage with the process. So I need it. I thought I'll do some prep. I'll 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 do it a few times so I can work out how I'm going to teach him. And it isn't complicated, but I absolutely couldn't have described it. I was like, I was saying to him, well, isn't this funny? I, I don't know how to do this. If I do it yeah. slowly, I can't do it because I can only but, do it one way fast. But now imagine doing it over the phone. Yeah. When you're not holding anything. Yeah. So, there's, so the thing is, I... I, I, I would I like would... to invite the listener to pause and try describing how to tie shoelaces, <laughs> just in case they don't realise how on point this analogy is. It's completely impossible, yeah. That could be quite a good uh, TV game show, just various things that we all do all the time. But you think all mm. the things like when you just take a lid off, a, you're driving, you take a lid off a drink and you try and take the lid off without anything spilling. They're little method, methods that we all yeah. use. And I, I, watched, <laughs> yeah. I watched somebody opening a drink and I remember thinking, oh, I do that too. Well, of course he does it too. That's how you don't get yoghurt all over yourself, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Little, just little nuances. So, um, so I think that... Um, I. I unique is it unique I, I because I've gone deep into things that I have been doing for years and explained to other people I I think that it's it's an unusual unusual book yeah because it goes so deep into obscure uh ideas and the the, the, the what I learned as I was writing was I was learning as I was describing stuff because as I described stuff I went oh that too so this thing about something called bookending which is the rhythm of repeating a word in a punchline I found patterns that I got four bullet points about when you repeat a word on on a punchline, and I got I I I felt like I had an e equals mc squared moment when I realised there's four things that have to happen. You go, you know, I, there's a bit I said you you might think well, it's comedy really about maths. I go, no, it's about music, and I've worked out some of the chords. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, okay, yeah. Because I don't think you know, there's no way you can rigid rigidly explain comedy, and also there's another thing that. If, if comedy was about maths, then anyone who was clever could do it. And you know that they can't. And I've, I've seen very educated and, you know, you do a, some does an open spot and you go, what do you do for a living? They go, I'm a judge. I'm a high court judge, right? <laughs> but in that dressing room, they're yeah. the open spot. They're, 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 their qualifications mean nothing because they're the one who's doing five minutes unpaid and they're the newbie in the room. And then you, I, you know, I've seen, I've done a gig with some, they've got into a limousine outside, literally. I, I, and, and, and they did a really not very good gig because yeah. they were new and they were learning. But they got into a, 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 a someone <laughs> picked them up, a, a chauffeur picked them up. I'm not kidding. And um, but the 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 point is that if it was, I've seen people who are very successful in their job, day job, and they've struggled when they're starting out in comedy. And you can see them look in their eyes if say, "But I I'm good at things. Why is yeah. this not working?" So being funny is a very unusual gift like learning to, to my, my point if someone isn't funny they haven't got funny bones they can't there's no book they can read that will make them suddenly become a funny person they, they can understand comedy they can write jokes better they can understand structure better but fun, this is why i love our job there's no boy band in comedy you know even the, the equivalent to auto tune would be ai right the there's only so good a manager can be to push a comedian who hasn't got funniness within them you can have all the writers in the world. That that sparkle in your eye, or that lack of sparkle in your eye, for example, if you're deadpan, 
that thing is, is a gift that's within you. My, my, the reason my book's called Finding Your Comic Genius is I'm trying to help you bring out the best that you can be by understanding things like triple punches and seesaws. You can improve, but having a funny thought, no, that's a gift. You can't... I don't think you can teach someone to have a funny thought. You can teach someone to improve a funny thought. You can teach them to help them become a better comedian. You know, there are, there, Sally Holloway's books are apparently very good for new comedians because it shows you how to make lists and start the ball rolling with ideas, which is great if you're new. I, I'm not... I'm out to make you better. I'm not out to make you... I, I'm not out... The, I think someone who's never been on stage could read my book and benefit hugely from it. But... Th- Three months down the line, they're going to benefit from it for a lot more. This should be the sort of I, I would imagine. I'm just wondering about like your 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 the audience for the book, improving comedians, is so small in terms of you know human beings on the planet um, that like for it to really go off and it should go off, you've got to kind of crack America with it, right? There are. Thousands, I don't know, tens of thousands, hundred thousand comedians in America. I don't know, but I seem to see new ones on Instagram reels every single day and go, oh, this person's clearly been going 20 years, never heard their name in my life. Why would yeah, I? yeah, yeah. So um, wh- what, what, what will you do to help that happen? But, or are well, you I- content that it exists and the manuscripts will be passed from comic to comic and when you're a little old man, people will go, he was the guy. <laughs> it's um, 8% of sales are in America of my book at the moment. Okay. Um, I've advertised on um, Instagram specifically in California and New York because mm-hmm. um, um, I got quotes from Ricky Gervais and Jim Jeffries yep. who are both big in the States. So I, I put the quotes top and bottom and then the title of the book small. Um, so it's, I'm, getting, I'm getting it at least known in the States. Um, Joe Rogan will be having a copy uh, handed to him very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, whether he reads it or not, I don't know. Uh, but that's that's good. Um, Ricky Gervais has got a copy. Um, whether he reads it or not, I don't know. But that's two giants in America. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I know I know I've created something special because of the feedback. I was the rich hall moment. I that was like okay, something's going on. There were maybe twenty moments when I just went. I just absolutely nailed a point. Like you you can't. You can't not agree with that because it's like a lawyer going, but here's all the evidence and now bang. Yeah. So, so I, I am very excited. Um, and it's, if it's taken me eight months to, to write it, I'd be a fool not to spend another couple of years getting the ball rolling. I mean, it is selling and it's, it's you know, it's it best selling in three categories at the moment in England and one in America. That They're very specific categories. I, but that, that's the books. secret of that's the secret of book sales on Amazon, I believe. Yes, I know. Well, yeah. I, I'm, I'm bestseller in books written by Adam Bloom this year. Yeah. Um, so, which is I why have, I'm not writing. Which is why I'm not writing another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to come second in that yeah. category. Um, I was. I made a note to ask you about um, Douglas Adams. And specifically, it's when you were talking about the the kind of the sort of comedy that you don't enjoy watching. I always remember this thing whereby Douglas Adams said that he didn't like stand up. And the reason he gave was that he saw someone do a joke about um, uh, the black box flight recorders on planes. They're indestructible, says the comedian. Why don't they make why are they so stupid? Why don't they make the whole plane out of that indestructible stuff? And Douglas Adams was writing about it, saying it would be too heavy to take off. That's not... Do you know what I mean? That's like, <coughs> that, that is stupid. It's unscientific. 
and I, I'm just interested. I think there are parallels between that and the way you see, like you're saying, you know, you, you know, mimicking a, a newer or a lazier comic, saying, oh, I, I, you know, a person in Greg's and I won the situation. Look at me. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what the question is. It's something I'm interested in. Um, you mention in the book a few times, kind of your insistence that there be no hackery. That you, I remember you said on the first on your first appearance on this podcast, if you come up with an idea for a joke, but the it's conceptually well worn, not even the subject. If the type of joke has been done a few times, that puts you off it. Yeah, there's there's so much I, I want to say now. Um, I a subject cannot be hack. A joke can be hack. Some people say I want to do a j- joke about um, uh, drive my kids to school, or is that hack? A premise can't be ha- like a million people might have talked about getting the munchies when they when they smoke weed, but a great joke about getting the munchies when they smoke weed is still a great joke. Yeah. Ha- uh, uh, if, if anything, taking a I don't really address very well trodden paths by choice. However, if you talked about um, the first time you have sex with your partner, losing your virginity. And you come out of a line that is unbelievably good. Arguably, that's a greater achievement because everyone's had a go at that subject. So actually, you've come up with something differently that everyone's tried to talk about and you still found something new. So a subject can't be hack. A joke can be hack. The structure of a joke can be hack. But a a subject in itself, by definition, can't be hack. It's a complete misconception. The, The Douglas Adams thing, I actually would have laughed at that joke because I'd suspend my disbelief that it's possible. Yeah. I don't... For, for, I mean, if the, if the comedian thinks all aircraft designers are stupid and they're cleverer than them, if they present that that way, then that's not good comedy. But as a throwaway comment, it's indestructible. Why don't they make the pain out of it? Yeah. That moment then, I think that, you know, I think that as long as the comedian doesn't genuinely believe they've rewritten the rules of, of air flight, whatever the word is, <laughs> um, then it's a good joke. I think that, was, that, that that's quite a humorless humorless way of looking at it but there's one thing a chapter i do called uh, virtual comedy and i want people to avoid it at all costs there are three types of virtual comedy one is making fun of something that's already a joke yes that is a horribly embarrassing I, thing to witness yeah, absolutely absolutely it's so You're, it's so cringeworthy when someone has missed and it happens on the internet all the time Oh, really? People are, you know, oh, yeah, of course, people are, you know, on, on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, someone will post a picture of something like, oh, look at this. And you go, yeah, that's that's what they intended. Yeah, that ambiguity was absolutely yeah. what they intended. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're making a fool of yourself by mocking somebody because they've been funny and you've failed to get the joke. It's yes. painful to watch. Um, another form of virtual comedy is finding a flaw in something without understanding it. Mm-hmm. So the example I bought the book was, um, oh, as I saw a sign outside a shop said, no dogs apart from guide dogs. Well, they're not going to be able to read that, are they, blind people? Well, yeah, but it's for everyone else to read. Yeah. Or, or, or possibly someone who's with a blind person so they can say, okay, we can go. But that, there's kind of, you know, I saw a sign in the street that said, to the blind school. Who's that for? Yeah. Um, friends of the people who go to the, <laughs> the blind school. Yeah. So that, that kind of mocking something, mocking the logic in something because you don't understand it, um, that's number three. And number three is making people laugh at something by reminding them of something they've laughed at. Yeah. Like, hey, Jerry Spinner, you get some crazy people on that show, don't you? And everyone laughs. You can perform something well when you do an act out of Jerry Spinner, good performance. You can put your spin on it and be creative as you're... But as, if you're only reminding someone of what they've laughed at before, then you're not creating comedy. I saw a, a magician 
recently, let's say. And um, he did this thing of uh, at one point he like there was lots of emotional manipulation in it in a way that I really wasn't comfortable with. I kind of like I, I, I suffered the effects of the emotional manipulation. He asked us to remember uh, a much loved teacher from when we were at school whilst he played some music from a much loved film that we all feel emotional about. And everyone teared up. And afterwards, a friend texted me and said, uh, did you cry at the, the teacher bit? And I did. Well, y- yes, but he doesn't own that. He didn't earn that. He made me think of a thing he knew would make me cry whilst playing some music that someone else wrote that they associated with someone else's piece of art, some movie that I'm emotionally invested in. And as a result, it was almost like virtual meaning in the, to use the kind of virtual comedy term. There, there was an Edinburgh show that I saw that I didn't like and a journalist who I won't name gave it five stars. And I went up to them and I said, um, what did you like about that show? Because I thought it was awful. And they said, um, well, when he asked me to sh- shut my eyes and think of somebody I loved who's not with me anymore, I had such a vivid picture of my grandmother. I'm like, <laughs> then he should be giving you five stars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, what a ludicrous... I mean, how easily were they tricked into thinking they saw a good show? So is there, is there a sort of a not a, a contradiction or a parallel or su- some relationship between someone who deals in emotional rhythms and almost like em- emotion smuggling rather than word smuggling. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Is there like, is that not also an acceptable art form? Given that what we're talking about is we have to make them laugh. We have to make them all laugh at the same time by arranging reality such that it all hits them at the right time. Is there not is not the sort of the emotionally manipulative performer doing something similar but with emotions? I, I've only got a problem with with an audience being made to laugh by simply being told about something that they laughed at when they last saw it. I don't have I don't have any problem with a comedian bringing your emotions by. I I wouldn't have a problem with a comedian asking you to think of someone you who you've lost recently and then being creative after that moment. No, if if your emotions that they evoke springboard creativity, fine. I don't mind if, it, if they ask you to think of four people in a row who you've lost and then say something funny. I don't care. I just have a problem with, with say, saying something to you that you've seen and laughed at and then moving on. But if, so if they go, hey, Jerry Springer, you get some crazy people with that show. They, when Jerry Springer was out, I saw four or five comedians just describe what they saw in Jerry Springer and the audience are howling. I've seen people laughing at the mention of the show. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I did a charity gig with Sasha Baron Cohen, who was doing um, Ali G in, in his pomp. Mm-hmm. And um, the MC said, uh, well, we've got a very special guest now. Um, he's been on the 11 o'clock show. The audience started, I've never seen this before or since, they started laughing at the memory of how good, he, isn't that incredible? <laughs> they, they were, isn't that great? Ali G hadn't even been named yet and the audience were laughing. They were laughing because they were remembering Ali G. I've never seen that. I've worked with some of the biggest names in the world. I've been on a bill with Robin Williams. The the audience were laughing at the description of the comedian they're about to see. Now, if you bear that in mind with how funny Jerry Springer was at the time and how entertaining it was, you go, Oh, so watching the show the other day. Who's seen the Jerry Springer show? And I saw this woman turn around to a friend and she started chuckling. He has said the title of a show and they're laughing. How is that possibly creative? 
it's not the comedian's fault they laughed, but it is the comedian's fault that they went on to describe what was on the show. If you do a brilliant act out, and you're, you know, I, I can't do accents. If you do a really good Louisiana accent, and you do make the face of that person having an argument, that, that, that's creative. But if you're going to make the audience laugh at something they've already laughed at, that better be a good performance. Otherwise, you're not actually doing anything. It's, it's, that's really interesting to me. I don't disagree, but I think it's, it's, I'm interested in how passionate you are about that. Because I remember, I don't know if we spoke about this last time, but I, I have this, one of the ways in which I would describe you and how intense you are about comedy to a friend that didn't know you, I might say, um, and I'm, I'm sure I've said this three or four times to different people, I'd have said like, oh, Adam, he really understands it on a mathematical level. He'll see you do a joke at the comedy store that gets a standing ovation and you'll come uh-huh. off and he'll tell you the joke doesn't work. Now, <laughs> now that, that might not be, I've been saying that for years, I might have pinched that off someone else, in which case I apologise. But do you know what I mean? I've, 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 I think you can recognise a sort of a truth in that. They all gave me a a standing ovation because they loved it so much and they laughed until they cried and they'll come off and you go yeah yeah it doesn't doesn't work doesn't, doesn't, doesn't count. <laughs> no I, obviously well I, I wouldn't say it doesn't work if it worked because I, I, I my my skill is explaining why something fails and putting it together again like a mechanic but, but you might you know you you one might argue that the person who mentioned jerry springer and everyone was falling about laughing that worked every their job was to make oh, yeah, no, laugh. no, no, people no, no. laughed no no this is the thing the virtual comedy chapter is different to every other chapter because yeah. I'm talking about something that's working in, in, in an unjustified way. Now, yes. I, I cannot tell someone you're not allowed to make people laugh about something they've already laughed at, but audiences will go home and, and forget that experience because it's, it's, an, it's an empty... You're, it's a knee-jerk laugh. There is no... Sub, they're not going to go... Yeah, I've, do you know what I really loved? Was when, when that comedian reminded me of a show that I watched that was funny... They're not going to. It's not. There's no substance. It won't. It won't stay with them. How and, does the, I, I understand what you mean. Just to, yeah. just to argue the point, and it refers to a specific comic who isn't known to me and hasn't been on the podcast. So I, I hope you know, with, I mention this with respect for this person's craft. If you think of Peter Kay, yeah, talking about Mum's video, or that kind of nostalgic humour, where you know what what how does there's your a, how does your line of argument difference. approach that kind of stuff? There's a big difference observational comedy when done well is pointing out things you do all the time but yeah. hadn't thought about until then and that you know totally agree yeah that is that it's beautiful dominic holland once said um marks and spencers isn't so much a shop more of a shortcut to other shops and <laughs> it's beautiful right but you can go well, that's reminding you of something no it's it's a it's a it's it, it's minutiae I, I remember um Dominic Holland, uh, again, did a thing about when you're on the tube and you're reading your paper and you can see someone else is looking at your paper. You think, oh, I haven't, reading that. I haven't finished reading this article, but I think I'm going to turn the pages anyway, <laughs> right? And that, I screamed when he said that because I didn't deliver it that well, but the point is that turning a page to spite somebody who's looking at your paper, right, <laughs> to get rid of them. Now, that, you go, isn't that reminding you of something that's funny? no. That's pointing out details in your life that you've never thought about until that comedian drew your attention to it. Yes. I remember laughing at Jerry Springer's show. You didn't have to. Talk, you did, I didn't need someone to remind me I'd laughed at it because I know I've laughed at it. Yes, yeah, it's very gotcha. different things. A, a, a great observational comedy is a beautiful thing. You, <clears throat> Peter Kay talked about things that we all did. Uh, by the way, Peter Kay is the epitome of a funny person doing material. Peter Kay yeah. is the, that thing about you can read the phone book and make it sound funny. If yeah. anyone can read the phone book and make it funny. It's Peter Kay. The facial expression, the movement. Matt Lucas said to me once, 
there are a lot of great comedians of our generation, but the only one that sweats funny, even sweats funny, is Peter Kay. Isn't that lovely? Even sweats funny. I yeah. love that. Yeah. But yeah, Peter Kay, I, Peter Kay supported me on a uni tour in 97, and he was phenomenal. And I just watched him. There's no MC. He'd just walk on stage and get an audience in the palm of his hand immediately. The, 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 a, a funny person doing material, I'm so glad I quoted that Woody Allen thing, because mm. the funniness that comes off you is the most important thing. So when, when somebody is incredibly charismatic, has got funny bones, and they do something that's quite simplistic, I'm fine with that. And I even say in my book, not all comedy has to be inventive. But if you're, if you're only going to get laughs in a routine by just reminding people of something they've laughed at, it's empty. They, they won't go home feeling that they've... You, they, when you, there's a, there are so many different types of laughs. And when you get that rich laugh that, you know, Doug Stammer talks about brutal truths in life about the way we behave, and Tim Vine, just silly joy of life and puns and wordplay, they're very different, but they're, they're, they're great feelings. They're, they're both as valuable to me, but... When you walk away or you get home and you... I mean, isn't it lovely when you chuckle to yourself about something a comedian said hours ago? Yeah. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. When you wake up... I, I, you know, I think the biggest compliment I had was a guy said to me, um, last time I saw you, I, I woke up and I was laughing and I woke up. And I go, that's a... That's, you're really spreading joy. Now, I don't think anyone's going to wake up and go, <laughs> that comedian reminded me of that Joey's yes, I, Yeah, very well articulated. I think that is yeah. the difference, isn't it? That is the yeah. difference. And that's those moments, the most satisfying, some of the most satisfying moments in my comedy career are when a friend or another comic says, oh, me and my wife, you know that bit you do about so-and-so? Me and my wife mention that every time. Every time we have a curry, we say your thing that you did in your routine. Yeah, it's lovely. A curry. I, it's just magnificent. So, yeah, so it's, but it's, I mean... But the reason, so the virtual comedy chapter is different to any other chapter because it's just, it's like a warning. Just yeah. try and avoid this. Because I think, you know, saying, oh, I saw a sign outside the shop saying no dogs apart from guide dogs. Well, who's that for? Audiences will laugh at that because they haven't really had time to think about how pointless that line is. They'll, they will laugh. If it's done with confidence, you know, with the right conviction, and then people, you know, you, you can laugh. I mean, I've, I've done ad libs when I'm having a good gig. A, a response to a heckle it's got a huge laugh and on the way home I thought about it going that didn't make any sense <laughs> yes any sense. faster with confidence and they just faster with it. confidence they yeah. believed I, I, you had them up there in the air to the extent that they just thought well this guy's magic anything he says is funny and they just and it, it managed to sustain well, yeah well you, you, you mentioned earlier that I said all jokes are either balls or cubes um, which is obviously quite a lot to go into now but um, I had a a, a, a bit of um, a very emotional final bit to a routine. It was very heartfelt, very heartfelt, going back, going through trouble and getting out the other end of a troubled time. And there's a callback at the end and it's a building, rolling energy, rolling, rolling, rolling. This was, this was a, definitely a, um, a, a ball hitting a cube. Now I'm, get, now I'm going into the book without just explaining it. This uh, was let, a, let me see if I can explain it in 30 seconds. Okay. Jokes are balls or cubes. Um, balls roll without, you give them a tiny push and they roll. Cubes, you've got to give them a real whack. So if you've got a joke that's a cube, e.g. it isn't getting across kind of rhythmically with an audience, if you do a joke that's a ball first, the ball will hit the cube and it will make suddenly your cube joke that didn't work will now work. Is that right? Perfect. Yeah, Perfect. Got, got it, got it. Um, so, yeah, so a, a, a cube will be a cerebral 
joke with no emotion or visual images. It's just something that's very clever and short, and it will often die because there's no energy in the room. So if you wait till there's energy in the room to do it, then it yeah. will work. Or you write a joke before it that pushes it along. And I, this is a close to infallible method. And the, the point is I talked about a joke that was a cube that was getting silence. Mm. So I wrote two balls before it to push it along, and it works every time. And the joke's no different. It just needed it. Because comedians come off, they go, yeah, they didn't get that joke. How do you know? Yeah. <laughs> How did they yeah. didn't get it? Maybe yeah. they didn't like you. Maybe they were bored. Maybe they were just not... I, I've watched a comedian got a joke and not laughed. So how yeah. dare you think everyone's... That, that, the whole audience was stupid. And you walk away with this horrible delusion that you're too clever for your audience. Or have contempt for the other comedians who did well because that means the audience got them but not me. I'm so clever that I don't like you because you're below me. It's an awful attitude. It can be a joke didn't work because the audience weren't committed to getting it or, weren't, or they got it and didn't laugh because they just went, oh, yeah, that's a cube. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the point is, I, I did it at uh, the Comedia in Brighton, and I did this massive rolling energy ball, 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 and it had a callback at the end, at the end of this emotional, just massive rolling ball. And it, it got the biggest, as big a laugh as it's ever got. And I came off, and Christian Riley went, do you know you didn't do the setup to that callback? <laughs> I, I had no idea. So uh, an audience screamed with laughter purely because of emotion and energy and conviction, and they were having a good time. There was, the, there was, the joke made no sense. And it's quite, it's quite worrying, isn't it, that the audience can scream. But what's the point of doing all the effort if they can scream at something that didn't make sense? Well, one of the things I wanted to ask is, could you, just sort of almost as a thought experiment, could, could um, let's call them an evil comedian, let's call them a hack, let's call them a... Could your book be abused to do all of the things you think are terrible? Like, could you do the opposite of the book and be successful <laughs> and be a successful hack? I think if you, if you read it from back to front, like if you play a record back with its satanic songs. Yeah, um, exactly. Or that, that um, chapter on virtual comedy, you're sort of saying, look, you can get away with this. Audiences will laugh at some of these things. You could use that if you are a, you know, uh, extremely attractive Instagram comic with a lot of confidence. You could go, you go, oh, virtual comedy, I'll do that. And you accidentally I, create uh, the world's worst genre. <laughs> no, but the worst thing is if they read the other uh, 31 chapters, they could also apply the methods and do some really well-crafted virtual comedy. That, that's my idea of hell, yeah. That would be my idea of hell. <laughs> um, I, you know what's funny is um, uh, I had... So my wife lived in Amsterdam and we spent the first year going back and forth to very romantic back and forth. And about three weeks into our relationship, I did some shows in Germany and she came over to visit me from Amsterdam. Now, the audiences were all German. All the comedians were German and I was the only non-German comedian. And they made an announcement after the show in German and the whole audience went, like groaned. And I went, I'm backstage about to go on. I said, what did, what did he say? He said, the next act's going to be in English. Yeah. So... The 300 people groaned like, oh, no, not an English-speaking comedian. Because they were older. This was the night, uh, 2003. They were older, so they learnt Russian as a second language. So they didn't want an English comedian. I don't know why I was being booked there. Mm. I went out on stage and I died on my ass. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and there's a late show Saturday. I went out knowing I was going to have a bad gig. That was a horrible feeling. But I noticed that the setups were getting bigger laughs than the punchlines. So I go, oh, I flew, I flew business class. And they chuckle because they were supported. Ah, I understand business class. And I go, yeah, if you want to fly business class, you probably know this, um, put on a really nice suit and get a job, right? <laughs> Silence, right? I've got four cats at home. Ah, punchline, silence. 
They were so supportive, they laugh at the setups. But when it came to the cerebral bit or whatever, they're just nothing. So I turned around to, to my, my wife and I said, on the late show, I've had enough of this. I've died four nights. On the late show, I'm only do setups. I'm only do setups. <laughs> what can be more virtual than, than just going, oh, good evening, I flew business club, ha ha. I've got four cats, ha ha. I went shopping the other day, ha ha. I mean, <laughs> the right? But the point I'm making is, Stuart, is that eventually they would stop laughing at setups if they can't. Yes. Just, they, yeah. sure. And that, I think, is what would happen if someone only did virtual comedy. The yes. audience would gradually start to go, wait a minute, this is rubbish. And I think that bursts of it uh, will work because, you know, if you like a performer, you want to laugh. I've mentioned Dominic Holland twice now. Dominic, I was doing a residency when I was been going a year and a half and I'd run out of material. I'd been doing it every week for 10 weeks. I ran out of material mm. and I had to go on with no material at all. And I was terrified. And Dominic Holland, who I barely knew, said, listen, comedy is a lot easier than people make out because the audience want to laugh. They've paid money to come out and laugh. They want to laugh. And it was the most beautiful advice anyone's ever given me because I was terrified. I got nothing. But they want the show to work. So mm-hmm. I would go out on stage. Of course, we know how difficult comedy can be, but audiences are paid to laugh. They don't go out wanting a comedian to fail. They want to laugh. So... In the same sense, these people in Germany, just they wanted the gig to go well. And virtual comedy will work because the audience wants to go well. And also they haven't got time to think, well, actually, the blind school actually hasn't signed there. for you know. But there's virtual comedy that works because the audience haven't got time to think it through. Mm. But if you did lots of it, I think the audience would start to go, yeah, I think this is... I mean, you know, the same way that comedy is as close to a meritocracy as in the arts as you can get. Very, very, very good comedians. I mean... Name one comedian who fills stadiums that you don't think is talented. Sure, yeah. Um, so the, the point is that um, in Germany, so I said, I'm going to do all, all setups. Then I, stuck, I pulled my hat, looked around the curtain before the uh, show, on the late show, and they were all younger because it was a late show. The older people weren't staying up late. And younger people learned English as a second language. So I went out and had a lovely gig. And I never got to do the gig of setups, but wouldn't it be lovely? <laughs> I remember seeing um, when they were doing this is years ago. This is one of the, the things watching the live record of this pushed me over the edge and made me do my first gig. But do you remember 28 acts in 28 minutes? Do you remember yes. that concept show? I got heckled. I got heckled. I was like, I've got a minute. I've got a minute. <laughs> you what, were did you, what, a minute. Did, what did you do on that show? What was your minute that you did when they, when they take uh, you? I did. You... I did I did, I did I've, I've got four jokes. Yeah. And then I just, is it fair to say that, bang? Is it fair to oh, say yes, that, Oh, yes, I remember. Yeah, I yeah. do remember. That's so yeah. funny. The one I was going to refer to was um, uh, Robin Ince's take on that uh, format was to, he just did the punchlines. It was just brilliant. He just oh, said he great. just did a minute's worth of punchlines. Oh, that's great. Four that's pounds great. of undigested fat under his fingernails. Next. Lovely. <laughs> <Do you mean? laughs> well, that, that, but here we go. We talk about um, seesaws and rhythm yeah. and funny sounding words. You, you, the reason that worked is because they were nice, nice words. Oh, yes. And, they, oh, they, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the punchlines and, and themselves. All, yeah, and also there's the cryptic element of I wonder what the joke was about. So it's a, it's a great idea. It's actually a brilliant idea. But not only does the audience have to wonder what the joke was about, and, and get their own little thrill going, I don't know, but I like the idea. Um, they also can appreciate the sound and the flow. I've, I've watched comedians in a foreign language and enjoyed them because I can f- enjoy the rhythm. Um, Otis Canaloni, who's one of my favourite comedians, he said, I've, got a, uh, got, I've written down some punchlines uh, without the setups just to save time. <laughs> and he went, uh, I don't care if it is your ring finger, get it out. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, that, and that's a trick, isn't it? Because that's a complete joke. That's a complete yeah, joke. Yeah. Just a, li- a nice premise, right? Yeah, nice premise. Um, 
but yeah, so so listen to someone do punchlines only is it, it's a great idea. The, my favourite one was Ed Byrne. He he uh, debunked uh, the plot in. Um, Back to the Future. Oh, yes, of course. I know that one, yes. But yes. he did it in a minute. He went, well, I'm going to... It, it was great. It was, he's such a professional. He obviously would have timed it, worked out, and, and, yeah. and may, maybe chopped the routine down a bit to, to shave it to a minute. But he proved a flaw in Back to the Future uh, in a minute. And it's like, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah. We've got some listener questions here. Um, uh, is writing the book Adam's Everest? I feel like we've kind of... I feel like we've covered that. If there's, this is one book and it's everything you know, can you imagine that there's um, that five years from now you've realised, oh, I should have, you know, you've had five years worth of thinking, oh, I didn't mention that and I didn't mention that. And is what, there like an expanded edition maybe? Do, do, do you know, um, I found a typo. I spelt the word aisle, A-I-A-S. Oh God, walking down the aisle. A-I-L-S-E. And I spelt it, ILSE the second time I mentioned it in the same, which is worse because I got it right <laughs> and wrong. If, if you get it wrong twice, you might get away with it, but I got it right and wrong. And, um, and a friend pointed it out and I adjusted it and uploaded it on Amazon and the next book that got printed, it's like a, it's like a two hour wait. Okay. The next book that got printed had, was corrected. Isn't that beautiful? Oh my God. So, yeah. so, this, so the book is self-published. So you wrote yes. it and uploaded it to Amazon and yes. you're selling it and you get the money from Amazon and that's it. That's the whole of the publishing process. Yes. My friend Elaine has, has written nine, but Elaine Bateman, she's written nine novels. So she did it with me on... Um, okay. Actually, no, she came round. She came round and did it. Um, um, but the, the first time I uploaded it as a Kindle, um, she did it with... Uh, Zoom and uh, screen sharing, mm-hmm. but the, but the thing is, yeah, she came around my house, and that sinking feeling was when we went click. Oh, I haven't got a project in. It's like sending your kids off to school, like, yeah, oh, yeah, or, yeah. Or, or they leave home. <laughs> when your kids yeah. leave home, yeah. But the um, but the the an extra okay, an extra chapter. If something occurred to me, and then I started going ah, more, 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 I could add it to the book, change the table of contents, and I could just put in the new edition or something like that or yeah. on the cover go extra chapter so yeah th- that that might happen um all the more it... reason for people to jump on board and buy the original first edition now after so that they've got a special unique copy after numerous edi- numerous editions uh, you make over the rest of your life yes if you if you have the word aisle with an without an a in it you have one of the first 540 copies very nice <laughs> okay <laughs> Um, could there be, Stuart Robin asks, could there ever be a magic circle equivalent for comedians? Why is it accepted to show the mechanics of joke writing? Uh, Stuart then puts in brackets, I will be buying the book. <laughs> ah, um, it's accepted because I, I haven't given you any, um, I, I've given you tools to do your own thing. Yeah. So the magic circle would be, look, if you know how this trick's done, then we can't entertain you with it anymore. So it has to be guarded, which is beautiful. Mm. Um, but a, a method shouldn't be guarded. No, a method should be shared. Lovely, lovely answer. Thank you. Al Kitson says, the book is incredible and I've already sent Adam a very intense email about how much I loved it and I don't want to look too stalkery. But also, the <laughs> <laughs> uh, first question is, I'd like to know what his relationship with ambition is. We've touched on that a little bit. He says he's been incredibly successful, such a respected authority. Was it ever his ambition to be a massive household name? And if so, does he consider himself to have made any mistakes or was it just not meant to be? That's a great question. Um, I all, all I wanted to be was a good comedian, and then when I started becoming a good comedian, I got people chucking TV at me, and, and Universal gave me a, a three-year retainer deal oh, at twenty-eight. They? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so um, I, you know, I, I twenty. 
let me think, 1998, 1999. Yeah, 1999, I earned probably twice as much as I'll earn this year. Right. 20, okay. 24 years ago. Um, but to me, I measure success by the respect of your peers. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, if, if I'm considered a comedian's a comedian, then I'm successful. Um, it, measuring success by wealth is a very dangerous thing to do. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld's worth a billion. Ricky Gervais is worth 128 million. It came out the other day. Mm. Does that mean Ricky Gervais isn't successful? Mm. Where do you draw the line of what successful is? You know, this phrase, I hope you make it. What, 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 you know, where's make it? To be famous? Fame can fizzle out. So if you make it, then you, it fizzles out. Have you, do you unmake it? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, it, I is, think... it is weird how that number people like people can look at someone's net worth. I wonder how much it affects that. If you go, if Jerry Seinfeld lost all of his money on a bet, if he bet his entire personal wealth on a flip of a coin and lost, is he no longer successful because he no longer has that money, or is that money a record of he was able to earn that in the first place? Therefore, he is still yeah yeah yeah. Good so people are obsessed with those numbers because you can't you know it's too messy, isn't it, to quantify talent? You can't yeah. say you know Jerry Seinfeld has. Seven quathons, where you know, where a, a quathon is a hastily invented <laughs> unit of uh, worth in the world. Well, Sean, Sean Locke once said to me, who's my favorite comedian, before he was successful in the sense of on television and making loads of money, Sean Locke said to me, When one comedian is successful and another one isn't, all that means is that more people like what they do than they do. Mm. It's a nice sentence, isn't it? All mm. that means is more people like it. Now, I think that. Like, I did, like, it did happen very quickly for me. I did have, you know, that retainer deal. I'd been going five years when I got that universal retainer deal. I did get on television two and a half years in and a lot of television four years in. And it didn't sustain. I got on the panel shows and I didn't do well on them. I was doing stand-up shows and not having enough new material, doing the same material on, on two different TV shows within a month of each other, being on Channel 4 and BBC 2 doing the same set. So, you know, if I'd have had that success a few years later, I'd have had the wealth of material to actually show the world and also I'd handled the pressure I mean I remember lying in bed before my fourth Edinburgh show not having enough material and I also had a comedy lab a channel four half hour broadcast pilot I was writing both of them with deadlines and I was I had the weight of the world on my shoulders I couldn't cope I really my mum said to me when the when the kind of success started to fizzle out television wise she breathed a sigh of relief because she could see that I was struggling with it all so then I went on did three radio four series and churned over five and a half hours of material in three years I coped with that pressure because I would, I'd grown up, mm. you know. I, so I had a bit much too soon, and it does, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter because I'm still doing what I love. You know, money's a, a bonus to doing comedy. Of course, you need to make a living, you need to feed your family. But as long as I make enough money that everyone's okay, and all I'm doing, of course, I'd like to make more money. But, but I mean, I make a living, and I and I love what I do. So there's no, I'm immune to bitterness because I love what I do. Beautiful sentence. The second part of Al's question is, he doesn't seem to have done Edinburgh since the 2000s. Seems unusual for an act as productive and comedy-obsessed as him. Is there a particular reason for that? Would he ever do it again? As soon as you stop stalking, stop stalking me, I'll go to Edinburgh. <laughs> I, I, I stopped doing Edinburgh when I uh, got married and, and had children. That's what it was. Um, but now... It's such a chunk out of a child's mm. summer holiday, isn't it, right? A month. Yeah. Oh, Daddy's yeah. going away for a month to follow his dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I thought I stopped. I got married in 2008, and it's no coincidence my last Edinburgh was 2007. Mm. Doing it now, yeah, I should do it now. Um, 
so yes, I and that his review, by the way, was was on on Amazon was just beautiful. That in fact, that was one of two reviews that made me think that I've. That there were two particular reviews that made me go right. I've done exactly what I set out to do. So thank you so much, Alex. Because it, on, honestly, if if I if I sold a million books and the reviews just said this is a good book and there were four stars or whatever, um, I wouldn't get the same satisfaction I've got now of just selling some. Mm. and uh, getting those kind of reviews because I set out to achieve something and the review, obviously not everyone's going to have the same experience, but the feedback constantly showing me that I I achieve what I set out to do, which is why this is my biggest achievement in my life because I've put 30 years of knowledge down in the best way I can and people are going back to me and saying, I'm I'm writing better now. Tim Clark's been going over 40 years and he said he took my theories put them to his existing material, then went to a new material club and did all new material that he had in his notebook, sitting there doing nothing, based on... And it's not just based on my methods. It's also... I suppose it's a, it's a life-affirming book because it's it's saying, you know, there's nothing but laziness that will stop you applying this method I've just described. And you think, oh, yeah, why... You know, you know people that say, get up and go, 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 go. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, you've got that friend who just says to you, why, you know, Jimmy Carr, you talk to Jimmy Carr about life, he's just got, you go, oh my God, he's, the reason he's so successful is because he looks at things so uh, methodically and positively. And you know, you've got that friend who, well, what, it's going to be rubbish anyway, that cynical friend who, you know, why'd you bother? When I, when, I, when I first thought doing stand-up, I watched Harry Hill and it changed my life in 20 minutes. And I turned around to my girlfriend while Harry Hill was on stage and I, or maybe just come off and I said, I'm thinking about doing that. And she went, what, you up there? Now, that one sentence could have been enough to stop me ever doing it. Mm. You know, you can't listen to negative people because they will get you in the end. So my, my book is kind of saying, these are my methods and you've got to get out there and put more effort into it. So if it, if it inspires somebody who's somebody, there'll be comedians who I consider to be far better comedians than me reading that book, getting something from it. Yeah. Because it's not just maybe just reminding them that they love their work. Just that, you know, that feeling of going, yeah, I should write more material. You know, I've already said I can be more prolific. But the fact of the matter is when I do apply my methods to my new material, it's, it's tight. And there are comedians who are very prolific, but their material's not great. Like, you know, I think oh, well, I'd, I'd shed over my stuff if it wasn't good either. <laughs> I'd get rid of it. yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's, there's very few people. That, Milton Jones is outstanding and very prolific. There are a few comedians who are just like, Milton does an hour and a half a year of new material and a Radio 4 series. That's phenomenal. And his stand-up, short jokes, they're all gold. And um, so there are some comedians who are prolific and brilliant. There are some comedians who are brilliant and not prolific. And there are some comedians who are prolific, not that great. You know, they, I can churn over 20 minutes a month if it's average. It's, you know, it's having that quality bar high. And there are very few people. Milton's the, probably the, the best example I could give of an outstanding comedian who just keeps churning it out. This next question is from Russell Stratton. And um, it's, it's kind of a... It's not so much a question. It's a, I just, it's a comment. It's an I wanted to say this. And I think it bears... We'll, we'll probably wrap up on this. Um, let me just see if there's any others before I do that. Um... Oh, this is, uh, we'll do this tiny one first. Kelly Edgar says, not a question, but I'm having driving lessons now. And as I approach a roundabout, I always think, assert, assert. <laughs> I, I can only assume that's a reference to one of your jokes, is it? No, no. no. 
Well, I love that. But that's why I'm laughing because it's just like <laughs> a complete non sequitur to me. Um, what would that? What would that be? What would that be? A ball a in a cube? A maybe. A, maybe. Uh, uh, here we are. Maybe. Maybe she did read the book backwards, and the car is the cube, and the rabbit writes <laughs> the ball, and she's hitting the ball with the cube. <laughs> Kelly, we're going to have to come back to you on that one, but I'll leave it in because that was funny. Last thing, then. Uh, Russell Stratton says Adam changed my life, and I luckily got the chance to tell him. He used to compare the clay pigeon in Eastcote every week, and on his final night he talked about confidence and how the whole world could be a stage for whatever any of us wanted to do, climbing on tables and saying how that was as much of a stage as the stage he was performing on. He wanted to inspire people to not be inhibited, but to follow their dreams, or to look at the stage and think that there was anyone more exceptional than anyone watching, and to think that anyone there was more exceptional than anyone watching. I've been a performer all my life since that time, and had so many wonderful performing experiences, including meeting my now wife on stage. Whenever I felt intimidated by a challenge or had a crisis of confidence, I remember Adam looking down at me from that table and I know the answer. Many years later, I got the chance to meet Adam. He was obviously incredibly magnanimous and full of humility. Probably not a big thing to him, but it changed my life and perspective. I, I do remember that story. And um, it's really funny because when I stood on that table, I remember thinking, a lot of people are probably thinking, what a dick. <laughs> and uh, because it's such a you know, spontaneous moment, just I'm going to stand on the table. And um, it's just funny how you don't know what people are thinking. Just like when you say that audience didn't get it, I remember thinking, I think I'm going a bit too far with the table thing here. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and I do, and, and, and hello, because I do remember you. And he came up to me and said, oh, you know, that, that thing changed my life. He said it changed my life. It just showed, you, you don't know what people are thinking when you're talking. And that, that standing on the table, I remember it very well. It was 1995. And, um, um, and it's beautiful. And what a lovely thing to end on, to be reminded that... that Wouldn't it be lovely if our, all of our mission was to, be to change one person's life for the better in our life? Oh, that would be, A, that would be lovely. And B, you've done yours now. You can do whatever you want. You can't sit on a beach eating ice cream. Wow. wow. <laughs> that's lovely. That, oh, that is a really, that's a really lovely thought. That's a lovely place to end it. I don't think the last time you were on the show, I don't think I had grown this... You know what, sort of the this the skimpiest, skinniest version of a format you could possibly have that I do now. I always or often end my interviews by asking my guest, "Are you happy?" Yes, I'm. I'm happy. Um, and a, 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 the two main reasons I'm happy are because I get on with my ex now, the mother of my children, which is the most important thing if you share children with somebody. I, and that we are, I would consider my friend, and that's the most significant thing for me to be happier than I used to be. And the other reason I'm happy is that I've I've written a book that's achieved exactly what I set out to achieve, which is why I I shed a single tear when you said what you said because uh, that's that's there forever now. <laughs> So there we go. That was Adam Bloom. I hope by now, I hope you bought it during listening to this conversation because you'd be mad not to. As I said, I'm not being paid to say this. Adam got in touch with me months ago and said, can I buy some advertising on your podcast? And I said, no, because you've got to come on it and talk about the book. And um, it, it is. Uh, what can you say about a book? I'm not I'm not very good at things like this. I just enthuse and I worry that I become generic in my enthusiasm. Um, but, it, it, you know. I think I think I've said my piece. Buy the fucking book, right? Um, you can find out more about what I'm up to. Do you know what I'm up to? Go to stuartgoldsmith.com/climate. That's what I'm up to. Uh, I'm going to repeat a little shout out, and I may say this in future as well. I've really got the bit between my teeth about 
um, trying to access our eco-dread, whether you're an activist or a business person or Jimmy Punter, uh, which I use in a non-gendered way. Um, whoever you are, if you're terrified about the environment, I've got things about it I can say to you, and I, I feel like I might be able to help with some of your eco-fear. I think I mentioned on a previous uh, episode, a friend of mine who I run with said, oh, our mate was terribly worried. He's a real hole about the climate the other day. And I said, you should talk to Stu. And that made me think, yeah, let's Let's do more of that. Let's 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 lean into that position. So um, have a look at stuartgoldsmith.com slash climate, particularly if you are uh, in a like a, a networking group or a business or a people planet pint kind of group or anything. If you um, you remember when I launched the resilience thing five years ago, I said, hey, if you can get a bunch of people in a room to listen to this, contact me. Well, that but with eco dread. All right. So have a little suss of that. You can join the Insiders Club should you not already be a member. And if you're not, I have no feelings about that. I'm not going to say shame on you. Uh, maybe you've been listening for years and never donated. And that's absolutely fine. You're completely allowed. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's better for me if you join the Insiders Club. But equally, there's no pressure at all. <laughs> Did that feel like it was a strain for me to say? I mean it. There's no pressure at all. And you are all completely welcome to it. Can I just... You remember I mentioned uh, Dr. Venn, who is um, uh, in Canada. And we had a lovely uh, conversation. Dr. Venn got back to me and... Um, and said, it's good that I've been... She said, uh, when I turned my mind to mentally cheer you on, this is me talking about people walking out of the, the climate show in, in rehearsal and at Edinburgh. She says, when I turned my mind to mentally cheer you on, I um, um hoped you'd have walkouts. I think it's kind of a metric of the show mattering. What a lovely way of putting it. Yum, 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 yum. Right. Um, I mean, this should really have been a a postamble, shouldn't it? I've ended up, oh God, I've broken my own rules and ended up postambling. Let's just assume if you wanted to bail out, you could have done so by now. Thank you to producer Nathan for taking care of this show. Thank you to Rob Smouten for the music and for Susie Lewis for the for the log, which currently she hasn't done and I've winged it, but I'm sure she will before long. Um, uh, thanks to everyone involved. Thanks to Adam. The book is Finding a Comic Genius. Find it on uh, Amazon. I can't tell you his website because apparently his website is uh, under currently under maintenance. But um, look out for Adam. Try and see him live if you can. And I will begin properly post-ambling at you in a moment. Goodbye for now. What can I what can I post-amble at you at? I've said the two important things on my mind. Oh, here's fun. We've not talked about ADHD for a while and I'm experimenting with medication for it. I am in the titration period and as a result... I am getting an awful lot done and then being more tired because I've done more things. Is that how it's supposed to work? Also, I'm dehydrated. You can probably hear that from my voice. Sorry to draw attention to it if you are a misophonic person. Um, but I, um, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying it. <laughs> Have I got anything to say about it? I'm, uh, I'm on a methylphenidate. I've learned that word. Um, and... Uh, I can't have coffee. God, it's driving me insane. I, you're not supposed to have any caffeine or alcohol, um, but I can't live my life without a 7am coffee because I've got children. So I factored that into the titration and uh, we are continuing as per. It's quite interesting. I do recommend it. I mean, I felt like, and you can you can read this however you like, I felt it would be hypocritical not to experiment with uh, medication. <laughs> 
Um, so I thought I'd give it a bash. I don't know if I'll stick with it, but it is quite nice having a sort of responsive doctor person that you can take your blood pressure uh, information to once a week and say, these are my observations. And they can say, these sound reasonable observations. And you go, oh, a human has patted me on the head in an expert way. So that's nice. So if you are, um, if you are, I was going to say afflicted, you know, we've talked about this before. Rory Bremner thinks ADHD is a superpower. If I ever get him on the show, and I'd love to, um, I will take that up with him. It, <laughs> my riposte to that is, it's a pain in my ass. Um, but, but you'd never know who you would be if you were different. So my point is, uh, if you're considering medication, I'm, I'm not going to promote medication. Oh my God, what am I? <laughs> what am I doing? Try CBD oil from this organisation. This is this isn't sponsored either. I'm just saying that's where I am at the moment. It's quite interesting. And uh, I'll report back in due course, I suppose. I've been on, you do one pill a week for the first week and two pills a week for the second week. I've just come to the end of that. I'm going up now to, sorry, two, one pill a day for the first week, two pills a day for the second week, three pills a day for the third week. I'm about to start doing that. And I'm just hoping for, oh, the whole thing is just me hoping for that moment from Futurama where Fry drinks exactly 300 coffees and times he goes from jittery to time slows down and he sees a hummingbird flap its wings in slow motion. I'm hoping that's going to happen with my mind. I'll tell you next week if it did. Bye for now.